this morning. Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask his blessing on it. Lord, we understand that in this world we have thirsts, we have hungers for things that would satisfy, that would delight us, that would give us joy. We often find that we keep searching, we keep searching, and it's in vain. Lord, let this text be a reminder of what Jesus said to us, that he is living water. Whoever comes to him shall never thirst. Whoever receives him shall never hunger again. Lord, use this text to point us to Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this text is about longing. It's about hungering and thirsting for something. And the longing that this one is about, we sense all the time. You sense it in small things in life. Like when that appliance, which was once brand new and was meant to work for a long time, has broken and it now needs to be replaced. And it's a lot more expensive than you thought it would be to replace it. You sense that longing when that once brand new bike of yours, which was so fast and looked so sleek and was so cool, is now rusty and worn down and impossible to ride. You sense that longing when the friendship, which was so encouraging and so edifying and so refreshing, is now interrupted by a goodbye and obstructed by hundreds or thousands of miles. You sense that longing when the once pain-free body, which seemed to work so flawlessly and you thought looked flawless as well, is now aching and wrinkling and unable to stay healthy. You sense that longing when you scroll through your phone to see the news headlines, and once again, it's filled with unthinkable crimes and heart-wrenching tragedies. But you also sense it in the good things in life, small and big. You sense it when you're sitting around a table filled with good food and good company with contagious laughter and stimulating conversation, and you sit there thinking, if only it were always like this. You also sense that longing When you're on a vacation in that spot, which you love to visit because the natural beauties are so breathtaking and the stress and grind of life seem to vanish away and you have that strange, eerie, foreign feeling of being rested and refreshed as you think to yourself, if only it were always like this. Or perhaps you sense this longing when you've been lost in a good book or mesmerized by a delightful piece of music or enriched by corporate worship with your church family. Well, what exactly is it? What is that longing that you're sensing when you experience the sorrows and joys of life? What you are sensing in those longings is that desire for your true eternal home where God makes all sad things untrue 
and all joys unceasing. Every sorrow you experience in this life, big or small, every time you think to yourself, it should not be this way. That's God stirring in you a longing for the world where sorrows are no more. And every joy you experience in this life, big and small, every time you have that moment where you think to yourself, I hope this never ends. I wish it were always like this. God is stirring in your heart a longing for that world where joys are unceasing. And this is what Revelation 21 is all about. That place, that true eternal home where those things exist is what Revelation 21 is all about. So in Revelation 21, John is going to take us like a tour guide and he's going to give us glimpses and previews of that eternal home which God is preparing for his people. And so let's look at some of these previews that John gives us. We're not going to cover all of them today. We're going to look at this over a couple weeks. But the first preview that John gives us of this home we long for, that true eternal home, is that it will be a new creation, a new creation. So that that word new should jump off the page in the first couple of verses because it it pops up everywhere in significant ways. In verse 1, in fact, John speaks in a way that should draw us back to the very opening verse of the Bible, the first verse of the first book in that first page in your Bible. So look at verse 1 with me of Revelation 21. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. It's as if John is setting up a bookend to the grand story of the Bible. He's saying, just as it began in Genesis 1, guess what? It's coming to a grand conclusion here in Revelation 21. The great grand story of redemption which began when God spoke all things into existence, which runs through every thread of providential history which God has been weaving together, John is saying it's coming to a conclusion. It has an end. But as you've learned, if you've read the right stories and the right fairy tales, the best stories don't really end, do they? The best stories end with a kind of new beginning, a better beginning. Because how do they end, kids? And they lived what? happily ever after. They end that way because their ending is not really an ending. It's actually a new and fresh and better beginning. And why do the best stories end that way? Because they're meant to be faint, dim reflections of the ultimate story by the ultimate author. We are all just plagiarizers at best. The Bible is ultimately a story, and it is God's story, and it's a story about redemption and rescue. The Bible is not a behavior manual. It is not a theological textbook or encyclopedia. It's not a magic eight ball when you're wondering what to do, you shake it and hope a verse tells you what to do. The Bible is primarily a grand story of a God who rescues and redeems sinners and renews all things for his renown. The story begins with God making all things very good and it ends in Revelation 21.5 with God making all things new. And in the middle of the story, we meet the villain and the hero. In the middle of the story, we have a villain who's in conflict with the one who's writing the story. Who is that villain? Sorry to tell you, it's actually you. We keep rejecting and rebelling against the God who made all things very good and who is making all things new. We turn our backs on him. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. As one author said, history is a long, sad story of humanity trying to find something other than God which will satisfy them and never finding it. Yet in the middle of the story, we have the hero that comes in not to 
fight the villain as it were, but to save the villain, to transform the villain, to resolve the conflict, to stand in the gap, to make a new beginning of the end possible. Who is it? Well, as you open John's gospel and you read about in the beginning, there was the word and the word was with God. Then John sees him coming and he says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then Peter tells us about him. He said, Jesus laid down his life for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might do what? That he might bring us to God. The hero comes on a rescue mission to restore us to our rightful place. The Bible is a story that moves from creation to new creation, from all things very good to all things made new. And if you pull on any thread in any part of scripture and you tug on it left or right, it is going to lead you back to either Genesis 1 or lead you forward to Revelation 21. It all moves seamlessly through those two points. Now, when the Bible speaks of a new heaven and a new earth, and no longer a first heaven and a first earth, in what sense is it going to be new? Now, is it new, like we speak of it, as in replacing something old, completely replacing something, like when you buy a new car to replace your old car? Or is it new in the sense of refreshing and restoring something old? Like when you, you take an old beat-up car and you bring it to mechanic, and they do a wonderful job and they present it back to you and say, it's as good as new. Well, I don't think either of those senses of the word new that, like we use them, quite capture how we're to think about the new creation, the new heavens and new earth. I don't think God is going to discard this world as if he's, he's kind of done with it and replace it with something completely new, nor is he merely going to restore this world back to the way it was in Eden before there was sin and rebellion, as if he just says, you know, I just want to get it back there and say it's as good as new. And instead, God is going to bring about such a powerful such a divine and supernatural renewal of this world that it will be both faintly like this world that we know, but mostly gloriously unlike this world that we know. The best biblical illustration and preview of what I think this is going to look like when God makes something new is the physical, resurrected, glorified body of Jesus. After his resurrection, what did Jesus do? He didn't float around Jerusalem in a disem- as a disembodied spirit, kind of scaring people. No, he walked and talked with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He, t- he had a right foot and a left foot, and he put one in front of the other, just like we do. What did he do with Peter when he wanted to restore him? He said, Peter, let's have some fish. And he sat down with Peter, he ate fish, and he restored him. I mean, I, I say this with reverence, but the glorified, resurrected body of Jesus had taste buds and a digestive system. It was a real physical body, glorified and perfected, though. And where there's some discontinuity we see with Jesus' resurrected body is when he did appear as a a physical, glorified human being, there was a sense in which people didn't recognize him at first. They they had to have kind of the, the veil pulled off of their eyes because there was something different about him. And yet when he was revealed to them, they, they, they did recognize him. And, and kids, you'll like this one, Somehow, Jesus was able to appear physically in rooms that were locked, and he didn't just open the door. He came in there, somehow. So how we're, what we're supposed to do with that, I'm not sure, but I'm excited about it, okay? <laughs> the resurrected and glorified physical body of Christ was something like his old physical body, and yet mainly, it was gloriously new. It was perfectly and permanently free from any defects and limitations of the fall, And it was fitted for a new creation. It was a preview. It was the first fruits of what is to come, even for us. 
So the resurrected Jesus gives us a preview and an analogy of what the new creation will be like. Like this world, but gloriously unlike this world. So in the new creation, there will be natural beauties to behold and to explore like we do now. But those beauties will be so magnified and the exploration and enjoyment of those natural beauties will be so amplified that all we can really say about them is no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, no heart has imagined what God has in store for them. In the last battle, uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis does one of the best jobs of helping us see how the new creation will be like and yet gloriously unlike this world. So in in this scene, I'm going to read for you the characters in the story. They've died, and they've gone from Narnia, the Shadowlands, to the true Narnia, which Lewis uses as an analogy for the new creation. And the first thing they stumble upon in the true Narnia is a fruit tree. Very fittingly, thinking of Genesis 3 and the tree and all those things. And this is what Lewis writes about their encounter with this tree. Everyone raised his hand to pick the fruit he best liked the look of. But then everyone paused for a second. The fruit was so beautiful that each felt, it it can't be meant for me. Surely we're not allowed to eat it. It's all right, said Peter. I know what we're all thinking, but I'm sure, quite sure we needn't. I have a feeling we've got to the country where everything is allowed. Here goes then, said Eustace, and they all began to eat. What was the fruit like? Fortunately, no one can describe a taste. All I can say is that compared with those fruits, the freshest grapefruit you've ever eaten was dull and the juiciest orange was dry and the most melting pear was hard and woody and the sweetest wild strawberry was sour. Or if we're in Florida, and the greatest juiciest mango was bland. And there are no seeds or no stones and no wasps. If you had once eaten that fruit, all the nicest things in this world would taste like cough medicine after it but I can't describe it. You can't find out what it is like unless you get to that country and taste it for yourself. So our eternal home will be a glorious and glorified new creation, like and yet gloriously unlike this world. Well, the second glimpse that John gives us of our eternal home is that it will be filled with new comforts, new comforts. Our eternal home will be filled with the comfort of knowing that we will never again be threatened by a natural calamity or a evil enemy. At the end of verse one, John lists the first thing that will be excluded from the new creation. So in in Revelation 21, there's this list of things that are gonna be new, and there's this list of things that are gonna be no more. So the new creation is this perfect blend of newness and no moreness. Well, this is the first no moreness of the new creation. Look at the very end of verse one. And the sea was no more. Now, I have to admit, the first time I read that, I was a little disheartened and discouraged, okay? I love the beach. I love swimming in the ocean. I love going on a boat and just relaxing in the water. And so, at first glance, this phrase, if you're like me, like that, it's like, man, this, I'm really going to miss that. But you have to understand that John is not making a statement about the hydrological makeup of the new creation, okay? He's not saying, he's not talking about the water makeup of the new creation. Instead, what he is talking about is the biblical symbolism that lies behind what the sea represents in the Bible. Rest assured, okay, water lovers, that there will be refreshing bodies of water in the new earth, okay? But we have to understand 
the biblical symbolism of the sea. Throughout the Bible, and for the original audience that John is writing to, in their mindset, the sea was symbolic of two things. One, it was a sea, it was a symbol, rather, of the untamable chaos of nature. And then two, it was also a symbol of the chaos of moral and spiritual evil. So they viewed the sea in a physical, natural way with a great sense of fear. They didn't quite have the technological advancements we had. They didn't have the ships and the boats and all that transportation that we do. And so for them, traveling by sea was very trepidatious, very risky. The mortality rate was high because they knew how quickly just a basic fishing expedition or the transportation of goods could quickly turn into a deadly affair when uh, a storm turns a calm sea into a raging, tossing uh, issue. And think of the disciples when they're in the boat with Jesus. Jesus sleeping on the boat, which, which stuns them, first of all. And the storm gets so bad that they, they shake Jesus awake and say, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, these are trained fishermen who aren't saying, don't you care that we might perish? Don't you care that we're probably perishing? They say, don't you care that we are going to die? Because they knew how trepidatious it was to be on the sea. They knew that no mere human being, no human-made boat, especially at that time, was any match for a raging and tossing squell at sea. And now here's a modern illustration that we have of this that hits close to home. Why do most insurance companies not cover homes in Florida that are near the ocean? Is it because they're cheap? Maybe. Or is it because they have a good sense of the untamable chaos and force of a hurricane and they don't want to have to pay for it when it comes through town? Probably the latter. So we, we get a sense of the untamable chaos of nature. You, there's just certain things that you just cannot withstand. Well, in the Bible, that natural reality became a spiritual metaphor for the chaos of moral evil. So listen to the words of Isaiah 57:20. This is what Isaiah says. The wicked, those are morally evil, disastrous, are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. See, you imagine you're walking through uh, Carlin Beach or Coral Cove or something like that, and it's, and it's just been a storm the night before. And you see the, the erosion on the beach and the displacement of the sand and all those things. There's almost no beach left. That's how they view those who are wicked and morally evil. It just, it just churns up a storm that leaves disaster in its wake. So just as a natural storm leaves physical disaster in its wake, so also an evil person an evil empire, an evil government, think of they're dealing with the Roman Empire at the time, leaves a moral disaster in its wake. And this, is, this has a strong connection to uh, Revelation 13. Would you just quickly turn with me to Revelation 13.1? So we, we've met kind of the unholy trinity in Revelation, beast, the false prophet, the prostitute, that kind of represent the evil that Satan propagates through human agencies to persecute the church, to uh, uh, spread hostility against God. And the first one we met was the beast. Notice where the beast originates from, where the beast comes from. Revelation 13, 1. And I saw the beast rising out of where? The sea. Why does the beast come out of the sea? It's because the sea, in biblical symbolism, represents the untamable, often unbearable chaos of evil. And the beast propagates that. The beast comes like a raging storm to persecute God's people, to oppose God's plans, to do all these things. And so that's why John says the sea is no more. When John says the sea is no more, he does not mean 
that God is going to eliminate water. What he means is that God has eliminated all the real and symbolic threats that the sea represented in the Bible. There is a sea, we know, because in Revelation 4, when we saw the throne of God, what do we see? We saw a sea of glass. In heaven, it is perfectly calm and serene, uninterrupted by anything else. There is a seed, but it's eradicated of all the real and symbolic threats. God is not against bodies of water. Quite the contrary. As, as you see his original handiwork, he's a huge fan of bodies of water. He, he invented them. He loves them. But in the new creation, he intends to say one more time, peace be still and tame the waters forever. Well, in addition to that comfort, in our eternal home, there will be the comfort of knowing that we will never again have to experience any aspect of the curse of this fallen world. Never again will you have to experience any aspect of the curse of this fallen world. In the new creation, you'll get to fully experience that famous line that Isaac Watts wrote in that hymn, Joy to the World. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessing flow far as the curse is found. God does not do a half measure job. He only does perfect, total, extensive, and exhaustive work. And we will see it in the new creation. When Isaac Watts wrote those words, I believe his Bible is open to Revelation 21.4. So read that with me. Look there with me. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. There is not one aspect of this life that the curse of a fallen, sin-filled world has not affected. The curse is pervasive, it is rampant, it is undeniable. You see it everywhere. And perhaps you've experienced it too many times personally in too many ways. Perhaps you've experienced it through tears because of chronic pain and continuous struggles with health. I think of our dear sister in Christ, Susie Brennan. The cancer has come, it's gone, it's come back again. And then you add to the cancer, broken and shattered bones. And then you add to the broken and shattered bones, fluid buildup in the lungs that make every breath painful and difficult. And then add to that, collapsed discs in her spine, which no position of sitting or standing can seem to relieve. That is an aspect of the curse. Or perhaps you've experienced the curse through tears because of a broken home and severed relationships. You know what it's like for things to not be the way they ought to be, especially in the places they ought to be the best. Where home was meant to be this sweet place of comfort and rest, and yet it was a place of sorrow because of divorce or abuse or abandonment or estrangement or neglect. And you know what it's like to experience the curse. Or perhaps you've experienced the curse through tears of grief as you've mourned the death of a loved one. Never has the reality of a fallen world been more palpable, more undeniable to me than when I've been in a hospital room with a family who is clinging to the last thread of hope that their loved one's gonna come through. And then the doctor comes in and says, there's nothing more we can do. And then the funeral plans begin. There's not one aspect of life that the curse has not touched. But take comfort, dear believers because there is not one aspect of the curse that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will not overturn and overpower and transform and make new. 
He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. One day, we will enter into such an experience of the depths and fullness and breadth of the comfort of Christ that we will wonder in that moment if we ever even knew the meaning of the word comfort until that point. And the picture here is one of, of, of such personal care for every believer who's experienced any aspect of the curse. Because the one whose hands felt the pain of bearing the curse for our sin will be the very same hands that we use to wipe every tear from every pain we've ever experienced from the curse as he makes all things new. And he will welcome us into the home where our sorrows are no more and our joys are never ending. The wonderful thing about the new creation is it will be as glorious for what is there as it will be for what isn't there. It will be a gloriously full place of the right things and a glorious empty place of the wrong things. That is the home that we long for and are waiting for. Well, the third glimpse that John gives us of our eternal home is that he shows us it will be filled with new joys and delights. In verse 6, John wants to awaken our appetites for this place by saying this in verse 6. He said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Again, we must understand this promise in the richness of its biblical symbolism. This is not a statement about the quality of the drinking water in the new creation, although I'm told this can be great. Rather, it's a statement about the fact that in the new creation, that constant craving you've had for contentment that is never satisfied, that continual searching and longing for something in this world which will quench your appetite for satisfaction and joy, but you can never seem to find it, will finally come to an end. You will enter into the fullness of contentment and dive into the bottomless sea of the joy that God has in store for us. Because the Lord will say, enter into the joy of your master. We will actually get to enter into the very joy of God, which is a bubbling, overflowing, never-ceasing, infinite variety of joy. Because God is infinite, he has enough joy to last in eternity. And because he is infinite, there is enough variety where you will never be bored for one second. We will drink directly from the source of every stream of earthly joy we ever tasted in this world. Now, contrary to popular conception, the Christian faith is not against joy and pleasure and delight. Okay? Being a Christian does not mean living a life where you're constantly trying to take the fun out of fundamentalism. Okay? That's not the Christian life. True Christianity is about understanding that you were made for God and that your heart will be perpetually thirsty until you discover that only God can quench the thirst of your heart, that he made you to find only in him. So the reason we warn against worldliness, the reason we stand against sin and endorse God's prohibitions is because we want to protect you from anything that would spoil, distort, or draw you away from the solid joys and lasting pleasures that are only found in a right relationship with the God you were made to know. We are not against joy. We are actually 100% for it, in the right place, in the right person, in the right way. The problem with the joy of this world, whether it's addiction or immorality or greed or gluttony or whatever term you want to put on it, is not that people are pursuing pleasure. That's not the issue. 
It's that they're pursuing it in all the wrong ways, in all the wrong places, without reference to God. That's the problem. They have forsaken the fountain of living water, which is offered to them, and they have tried to hew for them and make for themselves broken cisterns which can hold no water. I think of it like this. There, there's, if you're a parent, you know there's a, there's a teaching moment that you have to have with at least one of your kids during your parenting career, and it's that just because there's liquid there doesn't mean you should drink it, okay? We're made to be thirsty, and there is such a thing as water, but just because water is a liquid and that's a liquid doesn't mean you should drink it. Okay, so we've, we've had kids going into uh, restrooms where there's liquid and other places thinking that it's the same thing, right? That's how the world treats joy. Where does it matter where we find it? It matters infinitely, eternally, where we find it. It is found only in God. Enjoy God in everything and everything in God. That is the formula to true and lasting joy. It's when we turn from that, when we reject it, when we go and twist and distort and try to siphon out joys for ourselves in different ways and wrong ways that we run into all sorts of trouble. In the end, when you trace the beam of every earthly joy to its source or follow every earthly stream of happiness to its headspring, at the end of your search, you will find the ever-blessed, eternally happy God in whose presence there is fullness of joy and at whose right hand there are pleasures forevermore. C.S. Lewis so wonderfully put it in Mere Christianity this way. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy that longing, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings. And then the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that country and to help others to do the same. We're made with desires and cravings because there is something on the other end that satisfies it. We hunger for food because there is such a thing as food. We get thirsty for water because there is such a thing as water. We desire a true country where sorrows are gone and joy is unceasing because we were made for that world. May the Lord make our pursuit of that country zealous and desirous and hopeful. And when we get to that place, hopefully we'll say something like this. I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is a land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why I love the old world is because it was sometimes something like this. Let's pray that God would help us fan into flame that longing for our true home.